Hey, this is Julio. Hey, this is Steve. Before the podcast starts, we want to welcome and give you the opportunity to support our ministry by visiting our website at www.bridgemenlaredo.org. Scroll down to the bottom of any page and you'll find the PayPal donate button. Bridge Ministries exists to share the glorious good news of Jesus Christ and to equip people to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. If you would like to help us in our mission of making affordable or free Bibles and Christian books available and also to check out the orphanage that we support, visit our website. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Bridge Radio is back, and we're coming back at you out of the great state of Texas. And I believe this is episode number 20. Is it? I'm, I'm not oh, sure. I lost track. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's 21 or 20. I keep getting it wrong whenever I go, whenever I introduce the new episodes. I'll say this is episode 18, and the previous episode was episode 18. I don't know, guys. Anyway, but thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. If you're new, um, Please like, share with your uh, mommy, your daddy, grandma, grandma, uh, grandma and grandpa, or your, or your cats and dogs. I'm your host, Julio Omar Rodriguez, and across from me I have the boss, the president of the ministry. Hey, everybody. I'm Steve Denharta. Good to be with you here this afternoon. As always, we have a very interesting podcast. I can't wait to get into the topic, but I have two announcements, uh, two exciting ones. So if you're listening to through iTunes... Uh, we want you guys to drop a good review, five star. Um, try to boost us up in the reviews and the, in the ra- ratings so we could uh, uh, as well get more listeners and stuff. But if you drop a good review, we have awesome bridge coffee mugs. The classic one. Yeah, the classic logo. We just updated the the, the logo. Uh, it has the coffee uh, coffee mug on it. it has the ichthus on it. It's really cool, but I think I'm very biased because I'm the one who designed it. But anyway, these 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 coffee mugs are built like a tank. They are. Yeah. Good and we, travel mug. Yeah, they are, and they keep uh, your beverage warm. And how many do we have, Steve? Oh, we got we got a plethora. <laughs> we have so much. So going back to what I was saying, if you drop a good review, uh, rather we'll, we'll we'll send out two of the ones for that podcast who left a good review. Uh, we'll send out two coffee mugs. Uh, to weekly, right? Yeah, weekly. Yeah, make that clear. And, and it has to be within the United States. Exactly. Within, okay, just to clarify that. But yeah, we'll be sending at least two, uh, two of those mugs. And uh, yeah, just letting you guys know. Drop us a good review. And second, we're proud to announce in the month of April, we have the podcast series on the doctrines of grace, uh, also known as the five points of Calvinism. And we have. Uh, each person, uh, we have uh, actually six people yep. coming on to talk about uh, different points. And so for the God's sovereignty, we have Dr. John Frame is going to be coming on, a uh, former uh, professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, Total Depravity, Jeff Durbin will be coming on, Unconditional Election, John Sampson for Limited uh, Atonement, uh, Dr. James White. Uh, for Irresistible Grace, we have Tim Trumpert. Yep. And then to close it off for Perseverance of the Saints, we have Joel Beakey. It's going to be epic. Oh, yeah. It's going to be awesome. I'm excited. And for March, I think we're going to get Dr. Kenneth Gentry on as well. I'm going to try to contact him. So anyway, guys, I'm super excited. I'm stoked. Um, the individual that we have on today, definitely uh, the organization uh, has had a an influence on my biblical worldview on it's it's definitely helped create uh, a good biblical lens by which i view the world and i think all christians need to be equipped in that way in such a way and that's something that we like to do here at bridge ministries is help sort of develop that and so we have on um he has authored more than 20 books uh including restoring america one country at a time the bible and War in America, Biblical Logic and Theory and Practice, God versus Socialism, Jesus versus Jerusalem. He's been featured in several audio and video lectures on topics ranging from economics, apologetics, and church history. He has a wife and four sons and one daughter. Uh, welcome onto the program, Dr. Joel McDermott. Glad to be with you guys. 
Yeah, we're glad to have Appreciate you. Appreciate you having here with us, Joel. Yeah, thank you for taking your time out of the day. Um, so uh, Dr. Uh, Joel McDermott is with American Vision. You want to let uh, our, our listeners know what uh, what American Vision is, what, what you guys do? Sure. American Vision was founded in 1979 with the mission to restore America to its biblical foundations. It originally started out as a, a teaching Americans Christian history, but uh, quickly moved into realizing that that task and that mission has a lot of uh, aspects to it. And so it, it quickly moved into being a full biblical worldview ministry. And over the years, we've addressed government, politics, uh, law, uh, and, and of course, you also have to address eschatology, mm. your view of the end times when that comes along, because, um, you know, that that's one of the most uh, immediate objections as well. We shouldn't do this because, you know, everything Correct. is, is going to end soon and Christ is going to come back. And so we had to answer that question. So anyway, we're, we're a full or biblical worldview ministry, and we address topics across the board in that regard, all from the perspective of biblical law and, and biblical teaching. Awesome, yeah, and and Joel, Dr. Joel McDermott is the president. Uh, the former president was Gary Demar, correct? We had him on the program. Yeah, yeah uh, we did uh, his book, uh, Wars and Rumors of Wars, I, I believe. So, uh, well, we did a podcast on that. Um, but yeah, there's great articles, guys. Great books um, that I highly recommend to find on. Also, two good articles. Uh, Joel, you wrote one, I believe, two days ago. Um, Billy Graham had recently passed away. And uh, me and Steve read the article titled uh, uh, Billy Graham um, Flawed Social Justice Warrior. Yeah, rest in peace. And I think this is just a good uh, sort of uh, introduction to what we're going to be talking about and also kind of to, to talk about someone who, who had a, a big impact on Absolutely. the, on, on, on the uh, Christian community of this nation. But uh, Steve, Steve has an excerpt he wants to read, and we would like for you to talk about that, uh, Joel. Yeah. Sure. So, so Joel, in the article, um, referring back to the, the South in the 1950s and the segregation that was going on at that time, um, you quote from an interview that uh, Billy Graham did, and it says, he said in that interview, he said, today it's almost impossible for the present generation to understand what things were in those days and what it took to be that way. How many threatening letters we got, how many threats against my family as a result of the stand we took at that time. And then the, the story goes on to, uh, to say, um, the story is told in the video of how at one time uh, in the early 1950s in the Crusades, Graham asked the head usher to take down the ropes used to segregate blacks from whites. The usher refused. So Graham walked down off the platform and took down the ropes, the ropes himself. And then, then you go on to say, I don't care what you say, that's courage right there. Not many of the sanctimonious, Bible-thumping culture warriors <laughs> who should have done it did anything like that. Truth be told, I doubt many of the tough-talking ones today would have put their neck on the line to do it either. Billy Graham did. And I think that that's just a... It's, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing thing to... Um, to try to put ourselves in in his shoes and the the things that he was facing at that that time, and I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what he did with uh, in regards to segregation at that time and, and resisting it. Well, the best way to answer that question in regard to him is to go to that article on our website and then watch that short documentary that I linked to, where mm -hmm. it tells those stories from them. Uh, what struck me so much about that quotation. Uh, about you know, him getting the threatening letters and whatnot was that's ex the exact same feeling I had as I was writing the book. Hmm. It was like, wow. we're living in a different generation. I mean, I'm not, I, did, I didn't get the threats and whatnot, although I've gotten some pretty angry and hateful stuff. Um, but it, it's, it's, we're living in a generation now where that story is told in such a past distant way. Even the Jim Crow era stuff all the way up to segregation in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, that's it's like distant history. It's almost like when you when you watch even video footage of some of that, it's all in black and white, and it mm -hmm. seems so distant. Mm -hmm. Slavery is the same way. So, and and you, you don't get a lot in high school. Right. You don't get yeah. a whole lot in college. Even if you do a master's degree, it, unless you're focusing on that topic, you're not going to get a whole lot of the detail. Mm -hmm. And so, what's happened is over time. 
you know, in, in general society, in school, in history, you get kind of just this basic version, you know, Lincoln freed the slaves, slavery mm-hmm. was bad, they beat the slaves, uh, we wanted to end it, then the, we had the Civil War, and it was ended. And you don't get much more than that. Right. And and then if you lived in the South, and you're in, particularly in those cultures that made an effort to defend the Southern heritage, mm-hmm. you got a much more whitewashed version. Hmm. And and uh, you know I have many friends and associates and people I know that that have grown up in this and I, I cover this aspect in the book also that there was a purposeful effort to rewrite the history in such a way that slavery really wasn't the issue it was about standing for states' rights and we were always blameless in all mm-hmm. these other regards hmm. and so as a result of all of these phenomena we have almost a completely ignorant generation today. Yeah. That has no idea what it was like to put your life on the line. Right. We don't realize that the Billy Graham we know that stood up and preached the gospel, invited people down, and and I could come up with a hundred uh, objections to his theology and revivalism and that type mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't know the guy who in the 1950s could have been shot dead by right. an assassin exactly. merely for taking that rope down. Wow. Yeah. How how offensive that was, how bloodthirsty and how angry and how hateful and ready to fight people were over oh, this yeah. issue. And it's just completely lost on us today. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I wrote the book the way I did was let's go back to the beginning and just go through the history detail by detail and see what the facts were, see what it was really like. Mm-hmm. And as you go along, it blows away a lot of these myths about how innocent they were and how happy the slaves were and all this type of thing. Mm-hmm. And and, and then, then you realize it doesn't end with the Civil War. It In many ways, it gets worse mm-hmm. because yeah. as soon as the slaves are freed – then they're treated like, all right, well, you're on your own now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they were just as harsh and cruel and violent to them in many regards, but they didn't have the protection of being of any economic value to a master. Right. So, you know, he didn't hesitate to treat you like, you know, even worse. Yeah. So that that happened in many cases. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So all of this is lost on us in history other than, you know, the a relative minority of people who, who have read the history. And I wanted to relate all that. And when I and honestly I didn't know this about Billy Graham until I just recently. Yeah. And when I learned those stories, I was like, you know, this is a side of him that people need to know and they really need right. to respect. Right. Exactly. So it tied in perfectly with my book, perfectly with the, the lessons I'm trying to teach people right now. So that's why that happened. Well, good. Right. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that was good yeah. stuff. Uh, so the problem of slavery in Christian America came out in October uh, of 8th of, of last year, 2017. And I, Joel, you brought up how not many... Uh, people know the truth about our, our past history, and that's mainly because of the public school systems, how we're taught, how the history is portrayed or twisted. And I, I could attest to that completely. I went through the public school system. I just turned 25. And when you begin to read a book like this book, I was just flabbergasted, if you want to call it. I mean, it was just very revealing and telling. And I was telling myself, like, how come they don't teach this and this is just very interesting, and it was eye-opening. I'm, I'm being completely honest. It was mm. it was eye-opening, and so um, and this is this is a review um, that I found on Amazon that that speaks to to this. Um, uh, okay. It says uh, this this is a must-read for all Christians. Uh, I I knew slavery only through the lens of public education, but nothing more, uh, which was abysmal. <laughs> Joel's book, though it is fantastic is hard to stomach, not because it is badly written, but because of the authentic nature by which Joel allows people of history to speak for themselves, not only in extensive quotes and arguments straight from the Senate or House floor, but also in their legislation and their economic ventures to deeply root uh, root racism and slavery into the American way of life. He then goes on to say, buy this book, hit your knees, and pray for God to do his work uh, in you as you read it, and then it's it's interesting because the uh, the <laughs> the bottom review kind of uh, contrasts that. Mm. Uh, there's an individual named Jennifer Fleming says uh, SJW McDurbin strikes again. He clearly uh, knows nothing about the subject. Pass. So I, I want to ask this question, Joel. Uh, how long have you been uh, preparing to write this book? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, since I'm 
you know, I've been studying God's law for many, many years. And mm-hmm. in that sense, I've been preparing to write it for a long time. But as far as making it a project, right? It, it I can't pinpoint it. There have been a few issues that have been sticking in my mind for a long time, but it really was a few years ago I began to study the history of common law and the history of our original liberties and stuff like that mm-hmm. and how it transmitted through history. And the, the rival system to that is Roman civil law. Okay. And and th- there's a whole show to be done there on history. Yeah. But as I was wanting to do a, a book on criminal justice reform and kind of God's law applied in the criminal justice area, I, I I quickly realized that, you know, one of the big areas that's going to have to be addressed is the issue of slavery, mm. uh, both from the perspective of our history and from the perspective of biblical law, because the Bible prescribes what what is called in the Bible slavery for repayment of debts in some cases, mm-hmm. but also as a punishment for crime in some cases. And you can't say that word in our in our history, in our culture, without invoking what happened in our history. Mm. And, and honestly, quite honestly, a lot of people in the Christian Reconstructions and even just general Reformed and old school Southern Baptist circles right. – use all those Old Testament passages in many cases to justify what happened hmm. in American history as they're defending it in different ways and to different degrees. Mm-hmm. And so there needs to be a clear break between, okay, no, if you actually follow biblical law, it would o- openly condemn what happened in American history. Uh, and in fact, if we follow biblical law and what it calls slavery, it would openly condemn most of what we're doing in the name of criminal justice today. Hmm. So, you know, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. And but so, so in one way, it was a question I have to answer in the future, and I had to do the groundwork for it. And in in, in doing that, I, I don't want to say I bit off more than I can chew, but I got into something that was kind of its own thing, and it grew into its own project. So it's not just, oh, look at what does slavery mean? It, it, it starts involving a whole series of historical questions, you know. Well, why why was it racial? Oh, well, we're, we're, well yeah, but whites were enslaved too. Well, that turns out not quite to be the case. Uh, what about this? What about that? And the next thing I'm like, all right, I'm just going to write the whole history mm-hmm. and the church's involvement in it and why the church got involved in it. What would have happened if the church would have stuck with what the Bible says okay. on – on these issues, and there's actually, if you've read, since you've read the book, you know this. Mm-hmm. There's a very unique spin on that too. Mm-hmm. When you go back to some of the early Quaker writings, so you know it, it. When I first, when did I first conceive of writing this book, or when did I first get into it? It's hard to say, but it definitely had to do with my addressing the Bible's view of criminal justice, which leads into the Bible's view of social justice. Mm-hmm. And and so that, that was kind of the genesis of it, and it became a much larger project of its own. Right. All right. Um, so, yeah, let's go. Uh, I, I definitely want to start off on, on Chapter 1, the Colonial Foundations, because you were talking about um, you know, the, the whole notion of slavery, and, and, and just literally just two paragraphs into the book, I, I encountered my first just sort of uh, – I guess my uh, revealing moment, sort of eye-opening moment. But you wrote them um, uh, at first. It appears that the company employed exclusively indentured servants. And in the first chapter, one of the many things that that stood out to me was making the distinction of indentured servitude under British common law and Roman chattel slavery. Um, uh, can you talk about these two distinctions and how they played into the beginning of our nation? Sure. Just uh, the the basic. Distinction would be, I think, a basic distinction would be that uh, indentured servitude was a a, a temporary phenomenon. Yeah. So, and you could you could become indentured for a variety of reasons. It could be for the pay, paying off of debts or the paying of a punishment of crime. And in many cases, some of the people who came over here on boats under that system from the UK mm-hmm. would have been, you know just incorrigible criminals or different types of debtors or criminals who who may have been given a choice. You can serve this time in our debtor's prison or you can hop on a boat and go serve the plantations. Mm-hmm. And so they, they would have seen uh, they'll they'll take my opportunities in the new world. 
but in other cases, it was just people who were economically distressed and didn't want to live in the dirty streets of London or Liverpool or whatever and thought, you know what, I'll sell my labor for the next seven years or whatever uh-huh. for the trip to the new world mm-hmm. and the opportunity. So, okay, that's indentured servitude. Mm-hmm. And in, and that was gravely abused later uh, by Cromwell, I believe, and others mm-hmm. uh, to basically herd off entire populations of people in that system. Now, I've not done a lot of research myself in that area, but I do know that it was done. And versus the the Roman version that you could you could simply be enslaved permanently. Mm. Now, early on, that was justified by appealing to uh, not just Roman law, but also appealing to the text in Leviticus that said the Hebrews could enslave people from the nations around them, meaning the Canaanite nations, okay. uh, for life, and they were not freed by the Jubilee years. Okay, but uh, but but it was it was built on a Roman system. And so what they did was basically they said you can't enslave a Christian permanently, but you can enslave the heathen. And okay. so they had no problem these, – these Portuguese uh, Catholics they had no problem going to the coast of Africa and buying these slaves, whether they're buying them from local African chieftains or if they were conscious of the fact they were buying them from Muslims and slave traders, whatever. Mm-hmm. As long as they were heathen, they didn't mind it because their law applied. Their kind of Christianized Roman law applied. Uh, but uh, that clashed completely with the British system, mm-hmm. and the British didn't at first do it. So when the first blacks were brought to the Americas, the first boat of blacks came over on a Dutch ship, mm-hmm. uh, and and they were – uh, from, from what I understand, at least some of them now are known to have been indentured servants. Okay. And they were freed very quickly within a matter of years. And some of them went on, in fact, not only to have uh, you know, a, a life like some of the other local farmers there in the Jamestown community, mm-hmm. at least one of them, I believe, served on the town council or of some capacity of that nature. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it's still not clear whether all – I think there were 20 altogether – all 20 of them were freed like that. But within a generation, right. you start having cases where uh, some of them are being granted their freedom because they've converted to Christianity, hmm. and that causes problems, and and on down the line. And, and of course, if uh, you may be wanting to ask these questions. I don't know, but the, the way the, the, the history goes is they start tightening the laws, law by oh, yes. law by law taking away each loophole yeah. so that a black person, uh, because they are of African descent, yes. because they're black, cannot gain their freedom, whether it's through conversion, whether it's through uh, you know, being born to a, a white father, Correct. on down the line. Yeah. And uh, right. it, it just becomes worse and worse as you go. So that what happens is over time, what should have been a British common law jurisdiction, mm-hmm. naturally, you know, common sense would tell you this, mm-hmm. uh, was treated as a civil law jurisdiction. And if you really want to get technical about why is that the case, it's because the colonies were really not seen, at least it wasn't settled. They mm-hmm. weren't seen as an expansion of the common law domain of England, but as mercantile ventures yeah. of England. And so they applied the law, the, what's called merchant law or admiralty law, mm-hmm. which was a, a outgrowth of the Roman system. So they didn't mind carrying on this system of slavery within that system, mm-hmm. which is just one of the mind-blowing things to me historically, yes. because it did not hold on British soil. Yes. If, if one of those African slaves who was a bought and owned and permanent slave mm-hmm. was on a ship— he was considered a permanent slave under the Admiralty Roman law system. Yeah. If he stepped off the ship onto the docks at Liverpool, mm-hmm. he was a free man. Wow. And, and it had completely had to do with the jurisdiction. And so that system was imposed and allowed to carry on in the Americas, and then it became enshrined in their local codes, and mm-hmm. it, the rest is history. So – uh, and this is all in the book too, by the way. Yes. Under the British common law system, which is actually built on biblical nat- biblical law, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, it literally forbid that type of slavery. Yeah. And this is in Blackstone's commentaries, mm-hmm. and it's it's in other sources. So why that never was allowed to take hold in the Americas is, is a very difficult thing to say, other than the fact that it was so profitable and the elites who controlled – the House of Commons or the the House of Burgesses and yeah. and the the seats of power, so to speak, were the ones that preferred to allow the mercantile law to to continue yeah. and to impose it eventually in that way. So, two different systems of law: one biblical, one not. Biblical law got squashed in the name of profit because the Roman law uh, supported that. Mm. Yeah, no, and I want to get in. I want to get into that. There was a quick thought that, that went through my head, so I'm going to ask this question. But no, I do want to get into that. That sort of the in, the the beginning stages of of that Roman chattel slavery and the tightening of the law and the loopholes. But some, something something interesting, uh, a thought pointed uh, came up into my head, um, just in the different the the way uh, the British common law was and and what we had here in the United States. I remember um, hearing Jimi Hendrix say that he was more accepted over there in 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 britain and obviously that's where he first got big and as i was reading your book i was like i wonder if that had any uh, sort of just the the worldview of in the american in the americas that how how they viewed african-americans compared to how they viewed african-americans over there in british and how have you seen even the institution of america as time went on even up into the 60s where, where when he was living how even the culture of britain just more just accepted accepted him and you i i i guess that what i'm trying to point out is that the laws and the sort of culture throughout time uh, since the implement the implementation of the colonies sort of had that kind of impact i, I don't know if you, if you understand where i'm getting at um uh, absolutely the the scholars call that the pedagogical the pedagogical function of the law mm-hmm. and that is over the over time the law is used to either reinforce or to create a You're culture right. So exactly, the the law has social effects, and we feel them today. We don't really talk about them much, but, Mm -hmm. you know, the power that police officers have, the power that prosecutors have, the the creation and and maintenance Mm. of public schools, all of that stuff creates a culture and a mindset that we take for granted and then becomes a part of how we think and act. Yes. So – Absolutely, that had that was the case yeah. with the the slavery. And I'll say one more thing about yeah. the, the 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 law stuff we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, people are probably listening to this and thinking, "Man, that's some really obscure, oddball stuff." You know, mm-hmm. who's talking about systems of law? Man, this is a big big snore yeah. when you get into the history of jurisprudence. But if you read the Declaration of Independence, it was one of the things that Jefferson listed. You know the the declaration is kind of this list of grievances mm-hmm. of why we're breaking from Britain. And in that list is, I can't remember it verbatim, but he says something to the effect of the king has tried to establish a a type of law, a system of courts in a neighboring jurisdiction mm-hmm. with the design of imposing the same thing on us and taking away our free system of courts. Okay, that is that is exactly what he's talking about, not the slavery issue, but the system of law, Hmm. common law versus Roman civil law. Hmm. And he's talking about the Quebec Act of 1774. And you can go look that up on Google what it's talking about. Hmm. But so this is not an obscure thing. This is fundamental to how our nation was founded. And the irony is there, here you have Jefferson writing this, complaining about this, willing to take up arms and fight for our liberty over this, also himself a slaveholder, you know, allowing that same jurisdiction of law to enrich him and profit him, and the, and the same was true for the entire entirety of the colonies, of course. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, it's, it's one of those kind of tensions that's inherent in, in, in American history that we really need to flesh out and talk about, uh, especially as whites – Two blacks, you know, it needs to be something that that we make as a conscious thing to say, wow, we we recognize this when we're exalting our great land of the free and home of the brave, you know, just as Frederick Douglass and other people would say later in life. Uh, you know, I can't celebrate the 4th of July the same way you do because of all these things that were written in the Constitution. We need to acknowledge those mm-hmm. things, bring them out, talk about them. You know, it's not like you have to repent for them in the sense that it's your fault, but just be cognizant of the fact that somebody else is greatly offended by the fact that that was there and by the fact that we routinely just ignore it like it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those are all things to think about. 
Yeah, yeah. Again, I recommend uh, uh, to read this book. But okay, so let's go back to the because we were mentioning profit at at the very beginning of the founding yes. of, of of our nation, and this is very important to get. This is again something that was very telling and revealing to me uh, was the the tobacco boom. And how that was very profitable for the colonies. Uh, I'm quoting from uh, 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 Durbin's book. He says, uh, the exports increased seemingly exponentially afterwards uh, from 2,500 pounds that year to 1,800 pounds the next and then 48,000 pounds the next uh, in 1618. And by uh, uh, 1628, Virginia was piling over half a million per pound per year on English docks. Joel, how did this um, play into the shift of, of, of British common law indentured servitude into full-blown, slowly chattel slavery, just the profiting and the, and the boom of tobacco? Sure. And, and, and this is, of course, this, these are just beginning yes. details of the history. Uh, so, you know, I've had this problem in the past when mm-hmm. I when I interview on my book, Restoring America, people are like, hey, let's go through your 10, your 10 chapters. And then they, they get to the first one on public education and they never get past that one. <laughs> so this is kind of the same way with this. You want to yeah. cover all the, the cool details. And uh-huh. it's the same way. Uh, what happened was, you know, they did have this tremendous uh, boom in tobacco. They found strains that were popular. And so what, what happens when you have a tremendous demand, you you got to increase the supply to meet the demand, and you can't do that without manual labor, especially tobacco is some of the most demanding manual labor there is. And so, you know, they, they have to bring over more help. Mm-hmm. And well, indentured servitude might work, but it's got certain limitations to it. I mean, first of all, it's hard to find recruits for this if you're scraping the prisons and the streets yeah. for people who are willing to do this. Uh, you know, it's, there's not a huge demand for that. So what can you bring mm-hmm. over a few hundred a year? Right. And so when the, when the slave uh, trade is, is really taking off in the, in the early mid-1600s, this becomes a natural source mm-hmm. of labor. And of course, they bring them in and under the system of law, they, they, they're permanent slaves. They're not temporary servants. Mm-hmm. And that has advantages as well because these temporary servants, they might come over, work seven years, maybe 10 years, whatever, mm-hmm. and then they go free. Well, they, they that, now you not only have to replace your workforce, mm-hmm. but you have a certain phenomenon starts taking place as these these small farmers leave and they want to go start their own life. They get right. land, they start a farm, and, and suddenly they're not just uh, a loss of labor. Now they're in competition, competition. with yeah. you for for the tobacco they're producing. Mm-hmm. And so these this becomes a kind of a thorn in the side of these large landed elites that, that are doing this for great profit. And when you can bring in permanent slaves at, uh, at they're more more cost efficient they don't become competition for you and there's a ready supply of them in Africa in the slave trade all yeah. of these things work together just to drop that that uh, mm-hmm. that cost and and increase the bottom line so of course it becomes a natural thing and and they begin to import them so uh, the the other side of that of course was, the Bacon's Rebellion had had aspects of that in it too, but it, but it was really the the tobacco boom there in the 16 actually began in the 1620s, but up through the 1640s, 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. it, it really increased, and uh, uh, it was that that demand for labor and and the fact that it could be met more cheaply by blacks, and so there was a profit motive to you know, kind of right. compromise mm-hmm. and switch to a different legal system that justified what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And of course, if anybody complained, they would say, hey, look, what are you going to do? You know, the, the economy is booming, you know, yeah. it's, it's just like today. It's no different whatsoever. Yeah. So you're always fighting against those forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so this is another section of the book. The first chapter was mind blowing, man. <laughs> I could, I couldn't, I couldn't set it down. So the, here's here, yeah. here's something else that I that I wanted to to bring up was the the subsidizing of slavery. Um, talk about that, because that I mean, you, you again, you slowly start seeing that tightening uh, of of laws uh, and starting to cir- circle around African Americans and closing those loopholes. Um, talk about that for a second. The subsidizing of slavery. 
Yeah, that was a question that I had to answer. Like I said earlier, that this whole string of questions started coming up. Yeah. Well, I was actually reading the defense of the South by the Southern Presbyterian minister, R.L. Dabney. Mm -hmm. And one of his remonstrances is, oh, Virginia never even wanted slaves to begin with. You know, mm -hmm. we, we had no complicity whatsoever in bringing these to our shore. This was foisted upon us by Britain. It wasn't ours. And in, in researching that question, I came across the phenomenon that happened, I believe it was in 1659 or so, 56, or 1659, sorry, mm -hmm. 1659 or so. And in order when they realized that these permanent slaves from Africa presented a much more profitable route to go, they started mm -hmm. making deals. And so what they did was they took the tariffs off. Uh -huh. before up to this time, they they imposed tariffs on any ship that was trading with Virginia other than a British ship. So if it was the Dutch, they had to pay higher tariffs. It's just a classic, you know, mm -hmm. kind of. Uh, a game that nations play. But uh, when they realized that the Dutch were so highly involved already, pretty much ahead of them in the slave trade, they thought they could get the slaves here faster. Mm -hmm. So they, they took the tariffs off of a Dutch ship if it was bringing slaves on it. Mm -hmm. So it, in effect, it subsidized the slave trade in 1659. Yeah. Now, that, that year, that law only lasted for a year and a half, I think, because of some internal political fight that was going on with the crown and who okay. got the money. But but the point is it shows the mentality of the local House of Burgesses and the, the elites, the mm -hmm. plantation owners, in in pushing for a law like this so they could get, you know, they could get these black yeah. slaves there more quickly and more right. readily. You know, when you want something, you want more of something, you subsidize it. And so that's what they were doing. Yeah. And 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 also too, I wanted I wanted you to speak. I thought this was insane. The the head right, the when people would come over um, um, from uh, from Britain and how they would get acres of land, and then also to how they abuse that with their slaves in order to get more land. Um, that was um, again revealing. Yeah, I, some, I, yeah, that's some crazy history. And again, yes. you don't hear this in history class. I didn't hear it even in you know my undergraduate history in college, mm -hmm. and so. You just don't ever hear this stuff. But yeah, this was true in Virginia, and I I know it was true in South Carolina as well. It was probably true in other places. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, if you if you uh, agreed to come and settle, you know, you could get land, and they would give you the king would give you greater allotments of land per mm -hmm. people you agreed to bring with you, whether indentured servants or slaves. And over mm -hmm. time, they began to to make different allotments per. A slave or indentured servant, okay. and over time it began to pay off more and more to have a slave. But of course, the, the point was that you know the the landowners profiting mm -hmm. from this, mm -hmm. if if he will increase bringing over slaves, and so of course it was just an incentive to bring more slaves because you were never going to lose the property. Yeah, and in fact, it was just <laughs> going to in, increase your wealth more because now you've got more property to turn into a plantation, and now you've got more slave labor labor right there on hand to to do the work for you. So of course this is just a natural type of subsidy directly to the plantation owner or the settler uh, in order to to bring slaves over and so those those forces are working together which we see all the time by the way corporate America so to speak mm -hmm. uh, big corporations big businesses and government working together to scratch each other's backs and of course it's always the poor the most vulnerable that end up suffering from those mm -hmm. things yeah yeah very oh, man yeah what, just reading this book uh Joel I, I I was quoting Jeremiah in my head um the heart of man is wicked who could understand it I mean yeah it's, it's I mean you see total depravity at work all over the place and you see yes. also how it invests infests power structures especially oh yes and it's not that I'm opposed to power structures or anything like that I'm I'm a tremendous free market capitalist myself it's just you can't have a system a society that works like that if you're yeah. going to carry on all these sins on the side it's going to get worse and worse over time and eventually it will backfire 
outlier, and you'll have some form of a welfare state. Mm, yes. Um, so cha- I, I wanted to talk to uh, I wanted you to talk about chattel law slavery. This was another thing. Just just in the first chapter, guys, I was my mind was being blown. But you you talked about uh, under the common law, the status of a child uh, followed the 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 father. And so we were just discussing right now how there were a lot of laws were implemented to close loopholes and how they changed that um, and how it was it was based off of the uh, the Roman version of, of slavery. And I definitely wanted you to talk talk about that for a minute. And then we could definitely jump into just shortly of, of just uh, how Christians were, were helping push all this. Absolutely. This is one of the most heartbreaking it things is. to it me. And it, it, it is just. And it comes from people who say, oh, well, American ch- slavery was not chattel slavery. Well, mm-hmm. uh, actually, some of the laws specifically said that it was. And and for the listeners who may not know, chattel simply means property, yeah. that, that 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 person is your property. And there are these distinctions made. Well, oh, it's just it's just the the labor that you own and that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. it, it specifically says they were property. Well, you know, how do you get to this point? And one of the things that happened was very early on uh, when a a – uh, there would be a liaison of some sort, an affair, or it could be even this, a mm-hmm. legitimate relationship between a white father and a black female slave. You would oftentimes have uh, – you'd have this mixed-race offspring born. Yeah. And this is, not, this is also not talked about much. I believe the 1850 census showed that there were 300,000 mm-hmm. uh, what they called mulatto at the time, mixed-race mm-hmm. uh, people, which is a tremendous amount if you think about it. Yeah. But – Okay, so so this happens. Well, what is the status of that child? If the permanent uh, slaves were were enslaved and their progeny with them, mm-hmm. what about the status of a mixed race person? And so this question comes up. And uh, historically, under common law, in any case of heirship like that, the status always followed the father, mm-hmm. so that you would always be an inheritor of property of the father, and and the status of the father, like nobility or whatever. Um, and uh, and that was written into the common law. Mm-hmm. But this created a problem, a whole series of social problems. What happens when a mixed-race baby is born to female slave? Well, now some white person somewhere is accountable for this. And if it's not the poor whites, you know, over nearby on the countryside, it was most likely the master or one of his sons. Mm-hmm. Or possibly like a, a white overseer of some capacity. Mm-hmm. Whoever it was, there was a problem. And if it was the master, there was really a problem because now you have a half black heir to the land. Yeah. And 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 you have all these other problems. Um, so this question came up, and it was resolved essentially. Long story short, by a pl- going into the Roman law mm-hmm. or the law for things, which is part of the common law also, but it's not the common law for persons. It's the common law for, for things, for mm-hmm. property. Yeah. And they applied the, the, the rule for cattle in order to solve the question for the slave offspring. And it's called partis sequitur ventrum in Latin. It means the offspring follows the womb. Mm. And so from that point on, and I believe that was 1660 also, from that point on, maybe 1662, mm-hmm. Any child born to a black mother was automatically a slave. Yeah. And so now you have a whole generation yeah. of children born to masters, the sons of masters, white overseers, among others, mm. that are now considered slaves that the, they had no fatherly responsibility to by law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but but then the, the, that's heartbreaking in and of itself that they just said yeah. okay these people can be treated like cattle yeah and legally yeah but what's even more heartbreaking is the the consequences of that is it made the females uh, slaves sexually vulnerable mm-hmm. because now there was no drawback whatsoever yeah. to having uh, a child by her. There was no consequence for it, unless, of course, you were caught in the act, you know, and there was a, a lawsuit for divorce or something. Mm-hmm. There, there was still social stigma on fornication, but of mm-hmm. course, it went on. Yeah. And so now, now you have the the black female slaves legally yeah. vulnerable to rape, and people are protected against. Uh, the consequences of that. And that, of course, becomes a, a problem from that point on. Mm-hmm. 
to the point where you have testimony of slave rape, the rape of female slaves by white uh, people. Yeah, yeah. All through slave history, all the way up until yeah the latter times. Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, and I was gonna say, and I'm, I'm, you know, you could see how these plantation owners would now see the women are at their their slaves, the female slaves, as a way. Uh, well, they would use it as a means for more slaves to produce more, um, you know, children. Would would you would you say that? Um, Absolutely. Was, yeah. Some of them some of them Took did exploit that. Yeah. There's there's plenty of testimony. Well, there is testimony to that regard. Uh, that that kind of thing was usually done more through the use of other black slaves. Okay. Uh, with like kind of forced pairing yeah. and there were or they they just let them naturally right pair. right but they 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 definitely saw that as a source of income yeah uh, by the, the in fact that you've read the book so you know the passages from jefferson where he writes mm-hmm. literally about this that a that a, <laughs> a a reproducing female is more valuable than yeah. the best worker in the field because she's increasing the value of the commodity oh my goodness yeah no it, man i'm telling you throughout the guys the, the listeners Please go pick up a copy of this book, even for uh, an un- uh, you know an unbeliever. <laughs> it's like I, I feel like this book is a must for the Christian library. And uh, again, man, I'll, I'll say it again. I, I, all throughout reading this book, I was just saying, telling myself, uh, the 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 heart of man is wicked. Who can understand it? I mean, you see total depravity. Just oh man, it's it's terrible, man. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know if I interrupted you. What, what you were saying? No, I had made the point that I, that you were prodding for there yeah. and, I, and you're absolutely right and it's it was terrible but even our best men you know I, I consider jefferson one of the best of the founders when it comes to political theory and whatnot but even mm-hmm. here he's just in his you know he's writing these private letters right and and, and but but then then we also have you know there were people like uh, president polk used to trade and buy slaves from the office of the white house you know yeah you could go on and on and on all the all the greats that you know uh, there were few if any that are not compromised in some way on this issue yeah yeah uh, and so yeah let, let's go ahead and get in because we're, we're already hitting the top of the hour for the podcast and so uh, you you wrote in your book uh, I, I believe this was in the in the preface but you said uh, this book the clergy and church leadership in the south provided much of the most vocal support for racism and slavery during the slave days and 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 from and from beyond or for beyond um, and then later you wrote what kind of moral leadership does any church expect to display in society when they are so badly so far behind behind the society itself in moral understanding and willingness to confess sin. Um, I want you to talk about that and also, you know, we, there's so much in this book, but in just how uh, Christianity, or people who profess the, the name of Christ, helped institute much of this uh, oppression for African Americans, and, and how we definitely do now as a, as a nation, as Christians, need to confess this sin and, and address it uh, properly. Uh, and if you could just uh, talk about that. Absolutely. But- and this took me a long time to wrap my mind around. It mm-hmm. was not just a case of, oh, look, the Bible talks about slavery, mm-hmm. therefore what we're doing with slavery is okay. It was never that simplistic. It was, In fact, it was oftentimes a very creative effort to avoid the simplicity of what the Bible said uh-huh. in order to keep doing what they were doing. But the problem is that they defended it, and they did it mm-hmm. widely, especially by the time you get to the point where it's a north-south divide and the north is, is pretty much a freed society, even though it wasn't equally racially speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no slavery there, and the South was, and that became a sticking point between the two sections, and yeah. they, they, you know, it cost the war. But in that, what's called the antebellum period, from roughly 18, well, we could say 1800, but 1815 certainly, all the way up to the Civil War, mm-hmm. in that period, this is one of the stats that just stood out to me from the beginning that kept driving me to finish this book as I was writing, because I read this early and it stuck with me, it, it affected me. And I, and in the times when I felt dark and I felt overwhelmed, that mm-hmm. I was just drugged down by this book and didn't want to do anymore. This, yeah. getting this message out kept driving me. Yeah, And it's, it's, it's a statistic I got from probably the, the most definitive work on the pro-slavery literature these are the books that were written in defense of slavery. Hmm. Uh, and the stat is that out of, I think I counted 200 and 
something like 279. I have the stats written there in the book. Mm. Out of 279 individual defenses that were written, huh. and that is, you know, whether it was a small book or a book or a pamphlet or an mm. article, out of all of those that were written during that time period, half of them were written by clergy. Wow. Wow. Okay. Half of them were written by clergy. So a hundred and something mm-hmm. defenses, books, articles were written by clergy. Now, this is obviously an issue that mattered to them, and they felt that they had to take the lead on. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that it wasn't just, you know, you can't say, well, these were a few rogue pastors here and there, because it was a legion of them. Yep. It was from all denominations across the South. And it turns out that of those that were written by clergy, half of those were published in official denominational publications. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this was something that was accepted, not just in a few pulpits, but by whole denominations and was considered the norm. And here, read our magazine. Here's your defense of slavery. So it was that statistic that showed me just how involved the clergy were. And then, of course, the question is why? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they really did see themselves as defending against uh, they, they they saw themselves as defending a social order hmm. that was traditional to them. Yeah. Now, it wasn't necessarily that, that they had a good biblical defense of that social order, but it was defending the social order in general. And it was it was kind of what we would consider today as true conservatism. Hmm. It was, these are the institutions we have inherited. Mm-hmm. This is God's providence that this has come down to us, and you don't mess with the institutions of society. Mm-hmm. You don't mess with the tried and true institutions of society. Even if you think they're wrong, you don't just go changing stuff because it's there for a reason. It served us well up till now and a whole host of other arguments. Mm-hmm. That is that is the core of the conservative argument. You don't change the things. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, they exemplified that probably better than anything I've ever seen in saying God has established this and we should not mess with it and then coming up with a bunch of reasons and bad things that could happen if you do mess with it. Like yep. you're going to be turning loose a bunch of you know, uneducated heathens on society. They'll become criminals. Mm. We'll have all these problems. All, Ironically, all the same things you hear in the 1950s, 60s, and even sometimes still today. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it was it was this selling out fully to the social order. Mm-hmm. And of course, I explore that a lot more greatly in the book, the mm-hmm. the desire to grow their churches, the desire to have prominent members in their churches, which meant more money for the church. It, but that meant bringing in slave owners and plantation owners into the churches. And okay, well, maybe we can slide on that issue a little bit. And then once once they slide, then they have to defend it. I, you know, I kind of document all that in the history of the church. Mm-hmm. And in some form or fashion, the church was there from the beginning, mm-hmm. because the the original boats of the of the Puerto um, not, I said Puerto Ricans I probably said that earlier too didn't I the Portuguese <laughs> some of those early Portuguese boats uh-huh. that were getting Africans from the coast uh, they had priests on them that mm. were there and and like literally i record this in the book of the the one of the early priests in the 14th century is standing mm. there saying they're tearing the families apart mm. the, the they're they're wailing they're crying they're bemoaning the fact that they're being loaded on these ships and they're and they're being the families are being ripped apart yeah. and then almost in the next breath he says but you know what they're gonna they're gonna have the chance to get saved you know they're gonna hear the gospel yeah. so this is actually a good thing for these poor people even though they're having to go through this mm-hmm. and that kind of justification went on through the whole thing That's- so so that first boatload of Africans that comes to Jamestown mm-hmm. was piloted by a captain who was a Calvinist minister yeah. You know, and there was always this like everywhere everywhere you look, there's a there's a clergyman or the church is right there beside it, blessing it the whole way through. And that's true right up through uh the, the civil rights era. Yeah. So that when you do have a Billy Graham, <laughs> that he is such a standout. Yeah. In so many respects, and the even like the National Evangelical Association at that time was saying, "Well, we're neutral on the civil rights issue. You know, mm-hmm. we, this is not a not a religious matter. We're not going to get involved. We're not going to state an opinion." Right. And that's that legacy of the conservative Bible believing church, and mm-hmm. you know, anything closely associated with it. Right. From 
16, 19, all the way up to 1965 and beyond mm -hmm. is the reason why it, it, you know, we don't have any moral high ground on this kind of issue. Mm -hmm. And so when we preach against abortion or we preach against something else, a, whole, a sodomite marriage, yeah. uh, the, the whole world just kind of looks at us with this, you know, flippant disgust because like, oh, who are you? I mean, yeah. you know, what, what's your track record on social justice? Right. You've got nothing. Mm -hmm. And and that really comes back to haunt us. So that's why that passage you just read from the uh, introduction to the book, I believe. Yeah. Uh, it talks about, you know, it wasn't until the 1990s when the Southern Baptist Church came out and said, oh, you know, we apologize for our role in this. Mm -hmm. And other denominations, even the uh, Episcopal Church USA is still doing this only recently, yeah. relatively recently. And I look at this and I'm like, where, why are we not in the front of this issue? Yeah. Yeah, And, of course, speaking from my own tradition as someone who values what biblical law teaches, mm. that the guys who did speak out against it from the, from the earliest days mm. were Quakers, but they weren't doing it from what we would consider kind of a Unitarian-ish, you know, liberal Quaker viewpoint. Mm. They were hammering biblical law. Mm. Don't be involved in man-stealing. Be kind to the immigrant. You know, and he's going on and on and on hammering biblical law, nothing but Old Testament law. And if the church would have taken that seriously and listened to those Quakers in the 1690s and early 1700s, right. we would have had a, a much different world. Now, those guys weren't perfect either, but they were hammering on the right biblical issues that would have, if it would have been followed, would have stopped mm -hmm. the church's involvement in it at the very least, if not stopped the phenomena. Right, right. So that's that's why I wrote the book is, you know, here we are today, and for a variety of reasons, we've got some Christians who can't even bring themselves to acknowledge what happened in the past. Yeah. We've got some who are overtly defending the South as, you know, it, was, it didn't do anything really wrong. Mm -hmm. We've got some who say, well, that's not a, a spiritual issue. It's political, so I'm not going to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You've got you know, others that do deal with it, but they do it from a rationalist point of view instead of a biblical point of view. Mm -hmm. And and so when we, ha we, the conservative church, stand up to speak, and we want to say, you know, sodomite marriage is wrong or some other social issue is wrong, mm. everybody looks at us like, who are you? Why, why do you care? Yeah. Uh, you know, fall in line like everybody else does because mm. – and that's in, in, in what I see – Christians end up doing. Yeah. They follow along with the the most conservative party that lines up with them. That's uh -huh. mainstream and so that's why they mostly vote Republican and and then they find themselves in the exact same scenario. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were a clergyman or a Christian in the 1840s or 50s and you were supporting uh, if you, you were allowing, say, uh, kind of turning a blind eye to, to slavery and saying, well, you know, this is a spiritual issue. This is not a spiritual issue. This is a civil issue. Mm -hmm. And so you, you let it happen yeah. and you go along with it. Well, then when the war happens, you end up fighting to defend it. Mm. Yeah. Whether you're doing that consciously, you know, I'm fighting to defend slavery or not. You're fighting on the side that is doing it to defend slavery, and you find yourself killing people, willing to kill and fight and die and defend a side that is morally corrupt. Yeah, yeah. And we do the same thing today. We, we get involved with a party because of some reason like that. We turn a blind eye to its sins at the level of biblical law, mm -hmm. and we end up having to justify and support that party when the time comes or that candidate or that issue, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And we find ourselves in, you know, politically tied to corruption, mm -hmm. and we've ruined our own witness. That's the yeah. the the, yeah. the history yeah. of the church in the 20th century on the race issue is almost completely gone mm -hmm. uh, because of that phenomenon. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, uh, uh, follow up question to that. That was good stuff. Is I, I, how do we? How as Christians do we go on moving forward um, to just to, to, to yeah? And to, I to think avoid that? I think. Absolutely. I think my next book's going to deal with that a lot more as far as like really concrete steps that need to be taken. Okay. Uh, but this book, as you know, that has an epilogue to it where I kind of give a vision mm -hmm. of how to go about this because I do believe the liberal welfare state is not the answer. Mm -hmm. 
And so, and, and again, that's the same problem. The people who are addressing the race issue or racial issues are doing it from the perspective of the liberal welfare state, yeah. you know, and the people who do call for quote unquote reparations are doing it from the perspective of the government needs to take money from some people and give it to other people, mm-hmm. you know, and that causes all kinds of problems. So I, I the epilogue is basically a sermon on the, uh, the uh, Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. And of course, people don't stop and think that that is a, a sermon, that, a parable Christ preached on racial division. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the what's going on there, it is here's a guy who's willing to overlook the racial division. Mm. In his case, he's the, the outcast and the minority, and he's willing to step across the racial divide, divide to help give us of his own substance voluntarily, freely, to bridge the gap between him and his neighbor. Hmm. Because he sees the other guy not as a racial opponent, not as a political opponent, yeah. um, not even necessarily as a charity case, hmm. but as a neighbor. Yeah. And when you look at neighbors, you know, we can talk politically all day long and I can say, look, I don't owe you a thing politically. Hmm. You know, don't don't come telling me I have to give to this program or that program or the government has a right to take from this person, give to that person. That's the use of coercion and force. I don't believe in that. Right. But the Apostle Paul does tell us what we owe in Romans 13. He says, owe no man anything except to love one another. Yeah. And that Samaritan does owe to that uh, other man love and that other man does owe to his neighbor love and if we begin looking at each other as neighbors we can start to bridge that gap and i i, I know that's like something you could you could say on a hallmark card and it was it sounds a little bit like a platitude but it really is the case mm-hmm. because love is not just a feeling it's not this you know puffy cloud or fuzzy feeling you get you know love is an action that is defined by specific actions in scripture specific standards of justice specific modes of action mercy justice and truth and so when you engage your neighbor in terms of love of course you're going to reach out to that guy of course you're going to treat him as an equal and of course you're going to treat him the way you want to be treated and that is you listen to him Mm You, you you empathize with him. It doesn't mean you have to agree with him on everything, yeah. but empathize. And, and that's, that starts a relationship that does everything that Christ calls us to do in Philippians 2 in having the mind of Christ and yeah. humbling ourselves, emptying ourselves. So I see that as the path forward, which means we've got to have relationships built in our churches. We've got to have relationships built with individuals. Uh, of between races we've got to have people who are willing to shut their mouth and just listen and learn yeah we've got to have people willing to humble themselves and say you know what maybe while i hold to my political ideals and my values of the free market and all that stuff maybe there's something i'm missing here and i need to learn yeah. i literally just got emails from a guy today uh messages from a guy today saying look uh he says i fought this and i fought this and and i was reading your book and he said something a guy told me today, it just clicked. And he told me an anecdote where the whole thing just fell into place for him. And, and it was like, he hasn't compromised his view of the free market. Mm-hmm. He hasn't compromised his view of biblical law. Yeah. But now he sees what it means to have empathy for another person's point of view yes. and what they're going through. And and so it was just, you know, that kind of thing's happening almost daily with this book and with the the, the articles I'm writing. And it's it's encouraging. It's still a very hard uphill uh, path, mm-hmm. but but it's very encouraging because a lot of this is happening, and you find people who are the very type of people I'm trying to reach. Yeah. Uh, you know, rural, uh, sometimes mostly southern, uh, white, conservative, who are entrenched in in kind of an, an enemy combatant view of you know blacks. They see them as all kind of liberals and takers and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and and slowly eyes are opening. Yeah. And oh, now I see what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, now I see how it works. And that's that's just tremendous. That's the Holy Spirit right there. And yeah, and I'm I'm 
and so that's that's where I'm kind of going with that. It's got to be voluntary. It's got to be via relationships. It's got to be looking at people as neighbors. It's got to be based on love, but it's also going to be giving mm-hmm. and reaching out and giving of yourself. And there's going to be sacrifices involved. And if people aren't willing to do that, well, of course, no wonder we've got a welfare state yeah. because that's the, the foundation of the whole reason Marxism exists is because there were true exploitations taking place. Mm. There there was a bereavement taking place. There were, you know, essential robberies through the elites and through governments taking place. And if we don't address those uh, voluntarily in a voluntary society, of course, some form of tyranny is going to raise up. Mm-hmm. So that that's my message. And we got to get off our, our rear ends and open up our ears and, and make some relationships. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, you could, if you're in our location and you're in the community who listens to this podcast, you could pick up uh, the problem of slavery in Christian America um, here at Bridge. And Joel, where can they pick up a copy of this book? Uh, absolutely. You can find it on Amazon or you can find it on our website, AmericanVision.org, in our store page. Uh, but like I said, it's also on Amazon. We also have a friend of ours who's doing an audio version chapter by chapter mm-hmm. on Reconstructionist Radio. So uh, that's that's been a resource for a lot of people who have not been able to afford the book yet. And I'll be doing some videos and teaching series on it coming up too. But, but Amazon certainly... AmericanVision.org certainly uh, the problem of slavery in Christian America. Right, right, and then we, it's it's the month of February, February twenty third, I, and I believe we're, we're talk we're chatting back and forth with with one another. But is is it still on sale? Uh, Absolutely for, for the whole for the whole month of February on American Vision's website at our store it's on sale for the whole his the whole month of Black History Month. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, you guys could pick it up asap there <laughs> but um such a such a good book joel um it's it's it impacted me um and i, I i'm definitely going to read it a second time through um very eye eye opening man and uh this is coming from someone who went through the public school system and didn't learn any of this stuff and it, it's something that needs to uh, be brought um not only to the individuals that you were just talking about but also to my millennial generation <laughs> which is just uh, on a different planet at, at on some on some things man <laughs> yeah true 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 that and you're right it's not just the audience i mentioned it really yeah. everybody can profit from reading this oh yes so i appreciate you having me on for all that yes yes i thank you we would love to to have you uh have you back on bridge radio um to talk about just different stuff maybe uh talk more about slavery talk about this book do a part two or something but uh um yeah it's it's been a pleasure man having you on brother you bet i appreciate it anytime yeah all right guys well we're gonna go ahead and and end this podcast uh like share with your family and friends uh love the lord god with all your soul heart and mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself Uh, we will be back next week with john sampson and he's going to be talking about his journey out of the prosperity and word of faith movement Uh, he's a brother of mine and i i I love the guy a lot man so he's gonna have a lot of good stuff to say next podcast uh next friday so uh anyway guys thank you so much for tuning in and uh i'll see you on the next one bye bye